thank you, Stanley. Um, I, I honestly feel privileged to have been part of this group uh, for so long, and my involvement's kind of waxed and waned as I've kind of shifted around to different roles. Um, but what I'm going to present now is very much, I think, a reflection of how the work has evolved across the full 15 years of the unit, because the project that I'm going to present on started you know, with the exploratory work in that very first year um, with my uh, postdoc year. Um, but it's been updated and we revisited it. And as I hope will be very, very clear, I'm not, I think it was probably fantastic planning on Stanley's part um, that I get to come straight after Megan and Michelle, uh, because actually the work that they've been doing has also um, been very influential in, you know, how I and other colleagues have been thinking about obesity across the life course. So I think I'm going to pick up on a couple of the you know, interesting debates, tensions that they've already kind of put out there um, and, and situate that within uh, so the work that I've been doing during these years. So let me just uh, get some slides up. And I'm hoping that that will now look full screen to you. Um, so just to say that this work that I'm presenting, um, it's been work that I've been doing with Stanley from the beginning. Um, so it was an idea that uh, we explored on the basis of those origins of the unit um, with those conversations around um, systems thinking and complexity in obesity. But um, as I said, it's been picked up and developed more recently. Um, so the other collaborators that are mentioned there, um, Mark Kaizan was a, an MSc student um, in the Oxford Population Health Department of mine a couple of years ago. He picked up on this work and extended it um, under the co-supervision of Marion Knight. So this is very much still ongoing work and um, as I hope I'll present at the end, you know, still some future potential of where we take it next. So the spaghetti diagram, I expect most of you have seen it probably more than you would uh, ever have hoped, um, but this is the Foresight Obesity Systems map and as Stanley mentioned, in, in a way, um, the fact that the UK government um, had a, as part of its Foresight program where it thinks about of complex future problems um, and it had this uh, this focus on obesity or obesities plural um, that was kind of coming to the end of its kind of consultation period around about when the unit was forming and um, releasing its findings including this visualization of the systematic complexity of obesity and so um, you know many many students over the years have been subject <laughs> to this map um, and you kind of look at it and the takeaway message is oh it's you know it's really complicated or really complex um, the map, all those little boxes in there are um, individual factors that through expert review as part of the foresight process had identified as you know, some, a factor that had some evidence to suggest it influenced obesity at the system level. So in those early days, you know, we had, this had just come out and it was, it was huge for you know, thinking about trying to move the obesity debate beyond the individual responsibility debate and really think about it as an ecological problem. Um, so it was a great starting point, and the UK, I think, was really innovative in trying to take that approach, but then we had the problem of what do we actually do with the spaghetti diagram. So the work that we tried to do was to unpick it a bit. Uh, so the, the Foresight team listed, uh, issued a number of documents with its results, including um, they had identified pathways within that spaghetti diagram of factors that they thought might have policy relevance. So Stanley and I looked at the factors that were linked uh, with possible re relevance for uh, preventing childhood obesity or addressing childhood obesity. So uh, these that are listed are the ones that were in that kind of policy pathway within the map. And then when we looked at these and saw how they were linked, 
um, we noted that some, which I've colored in red, um, were things that, you know, by the time you're actually thinking about obesity interventions, these are things that are in the past, you can't really do anything about them, so your genetic or epigenetic predisposition, embryonic growth, um, potentially quality of early diet and weaning, you know, these are going to be things that were in someone's past, but not necessarily um, subject to intervention. Um, but then the, the ones that we coded in green were the ones that, depending on which stage of the life course you're looking at, um, still had some scope for intervention. And so what we did was we looked at um, the British birth, birth cohort data sets to see if we could find any proxy variables for any, any of these variables that were in the foresight map. And the ones circled in purple are um, foresight variables that we thought could be proxied by data available from the 1958 British birth cohort. And so what we did with this was then to develop a model where we said, okay, you maybe have multi-levels of risk. And this was actually um, building on uh, similar models that have been developed for undernutrition. Um, so we said, okay, there are going to be you know, some people who have past exposures, what we called conditioning factors that can't be changed. And the proxy variables that we found in the data set were birth weight and history of breastfeeding. But then people will also have potentially modifiable or intervention factors. And the ones that we identified from the 58 cohort were a number of um, data points on uh, current childhood activity. And then we also use parent body size as a proxy for parent modeling of activity, which um, you know introduced some, some interesting uh, difficulties that we had to deal with, you know, the extent to which that was a conditioning versus intervention factor. But for this model, we classed it as an intervention factor. And that gave us this risk matrix um, where we had, you know, low risk who showed none of these factors, um, some that had acute risk that might be subject to intervention, some that might only have past risk that maybe were less subject to intervention, and then a higher risk group that had evidence of both types of risk factors. And what we did for an initial paper that we published in 2013 um, was looked at the odds ratio of, um, you know, by characterizing the birth cohort on the basis of those risk factors when they were 11 years old and then looking at uh, their future overweight and obesity rates. And we found a relationship uh, between those risk groupings and whether or not they were likely to develop um, obesity later on. And we found that that held whether or not they were actually already classed as overweight or obese at age 11. So that was kind of the take home message from that work was that these factors might be identified before someone individually would be identified as sort of at risk based on their body size trajectory. Um, very briefly, I'll just say how this work was picked up then again in 2019. Um, so we had um, more birth cohort data available to us, the British cohort study from 1970. And so my MSc student um, went back and see, went to see if he could reproduce uh, similar results using the same model that we've used previously. And so what this very busy slide tells us is that yes, we saw those same trends when we use that risk classification system, thinking about past risk coupled with uh, present day or modifiable risk. We saw those same trends in the more recent birth cohort, but then he also did some further multivariate modeling um, and identified other factors, including maternal smoking and perceptions of child overeating at an early age um, as also potentially um, interesting factors to look at. And um, from his work, actually, it seemed that those uh, additional factors might even have more of an influence than the, the breastfeeding history. So where we got to uh, was that we started thinking about, okay, when we think a life course perspective and the complexity of obesity, 
Um, we're dealing not only with personal life course journeys, but also thinking about the changes and the ecological context for the cohort. So some of that later work also highlighted differences, uh, the chart there on the left, um, in the risk factors between the cohorts. So the 1970 cohort, for instance, had a much higher um, rate of, uh, of complete absence of breastfeeding, um, more evidence of maternal smoking, and more evidence that there was a, a reduction in activity with parents. So we have to think about how the group has shifted with the ecological context. But then the, uh, the paper on the right uh, was also thinking about when engaging with Megan, Michelle, other colleagues, um, about thinking backwards into the life course as well. And so, uh, Sophia, your, your comment was great because um, this was work that stemmed from a human sciences dissertation that we then went on to publish, um, looking at the role of fathers and, and what did the evidence suggest. And certainly Megan's work looking at mother blame and how the political debate was very centered on women and mothers um, very much shaped that work. So technically that was just published last year, but it's actually been out in a preprint for a few years. But where I think it leaves us now is that it's, it's kind of navigating that tension between saying, you know, how far back do we go? Um, how much do we bring in epigenetics, including of you know, both parents? But as has already been alluded to, uh, that potentially comes at a cost of reproducing a narrative that it's all about the past history and individual responsibility to acknowledge and do something about that. And what we actually found in our original model was that the, uh, the modifiable factors uh, had a stronger relationship with future obesity. So we don't want that uh, to get lost in the story as well, that uh, the risk is cumulative, it is complex, it does reflect the ecological context. Um, and so we, we have to, to be very balanced in how we take these debates forward. Uh, to try and keep the spirit of uh, keeping us on time, I just want to acknowledge everyone who has input into this work. John Conlos, uh, had, we had some early formative conversations with him about how we might go about this work. And then colleagues, including Harry, Clem, Charlie, and Pete, um, took part in early seminars that helped to shape this. Megan's work, very influential, uh, particularly the more recent developments. And thank you to Amy and Michelle and the many, many former students who have sat through permutations of the spaghetti diagram and, and what we do with it. So I'll just I'll leave for, for thought where we might take this work from here. But just to say thank you very much um, for, for being part of this network um, in which we've been able to, to develop this work across the 15 years. Caroline, thank you so much. Um, yeah, I remember the journey. Um, time for a couple of questions. In which case, Caroline, we will now move to uh, Paulina Nabitska. Thank you so much, Caroline. Hi, everybody. I'm trying to share the screen. Um, yeah. No? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Paulina Lubitska, the grandparent study. Um, floor is yours. Well, thank you, Stanley, and thank you for inviting me here to speak. And I chose to focus on the grandparent study, what we have learned uh, in the past decade about intergenerational influences on body weight, eating, and physical activity. So, um, 
in 2010 or oh, in 2009, I finished my uh, doctoral thesis. And at that time, uh, I worked as a clinician and family therapist. And I always been interested in the systemic psychological interventions. And at that time, I found that we focused too much on them, on parents. But in fact, already then, one third of UK families and one fourth of the US families do rely on grandparents for childcare. So I thought that there may be some important differences between parental and grandparental caretaking roles and practices regarding food, eating, and physical activity. So with that knowledge, with that mission, I, I, I went from Lund, uh, a university, University of Oregon uh, in US, and designed and conducted the grandparent study. I, um, uh, I invited many families, all family members from each family, and ended up with, with a broad um, sample and, uh, and material from 49 family members from 16 families with a, a with children age three to five years old and half of them uh, were with overweight or obesity and this was a particularly uh, low income sample so 50 percent of parents and 55 percent of grandparents were unemployed and the interviews that we did uh, were videotaped and transcribed so with this amazing material, I was so happy to be invited to Yugoslav. And I met Stanley. When I met Stanley, I was invited. And in 2012, I came to Yugoslav. And here is the rest of the story. So in the first papers that we published from the grandparent study, we looked at the memories and perceptions of their own uh, and their children's body size um, and the grandchildren's body sizes. What we found that no participant described the emergence of body weight awareness in positive terms. And some participants said that these uh, negative experiences continue to affect them as adults. Uh, we also found that neither parents nor grandparents tended to identify excess body weight in preschool age children. And even if they did recognize excess body weight in the preschooler, they rarely interviewed and viewed discussions on body weight as highly sensitive. Then we looked at the grandparental decision-making about preschoolers' feeding and physical activity. And we found in two papers that decision-making was informed by the notions of a balanced lifestyle. So with family members citing healthy feeding as offsetting indulgent feeding, as well as counterbalancing unhealthy eating with physical activities. So these balanced lifestyle practices, I know that Stanley doesn't like the work lifestyle, uh, were negotiated through familiar homeostasis, the maintaining of balance between parents and grandparents' care dynamics. And we also found that the balancing dynamics were applicable also when choosing and serving beverages. And then we went on and explored cooking, eating, and physical activity in depth. And then we went and we found the importance of space and socioeconomic disadvantage. So in a paper um, of, about feeding extending family, we found in the core of the, analysis, of the analysis that all participants 
emphasize grandmothers as sources of knowledge and support. So both fathers and mothers cited grandmothers and other women of earlier generations as culinary influences and as a role model for good parenting. Then we also looked at the child, childhood memories of food and eating. And we found that these memories express both family cohesion and family adversity and are affected by experiences of socioeconomic disadvantage. So the connection between memories of food that participants deemed unhealthy and memories of care suggests that in the context of socioeconomic disadvantage, unhealthy feeding and eating may become a form of caregiving with nutrition considered as only one aspect of well-being. In the most recent paper, where the first order is something published, uh, we found that children's day-to-day -day activities cut across a spectrum of movement mediated by available spaces and caregiving affordances. So here's my final slide and the take-home messages. Parents and grandparents adjust their practices to each other, therefore considering the processes of familiar homeostasis and including the wider familiar, familiar context is critical in research and practice. We need to move beyond the couple-focused paradigm of parenting in research on food and the gender division of food work. Food, eating, physical activity, and family cohesion are deeply affected by experiences of socioeconomic disadvantage. The important, the interplay between space and care enacted at the household level should inform an integrated system level public health approach to increase um, health and well-being for the preschool age children. And I'm just going to stop sharing. And by that, I would like to thank the info for making the space for my research and my thoughts, especially Stanley. But mostly, I would like to thank Karin Ellie. Karin, we have written 28 papers together, and we have five being accepted and five to go. And I mean, I couldn't, I mean, I had so much joy to work with you. You are a brilliant scientist and a great friend. And I'm hopeful many years to come and future collaboration. So thank you, Karen. Thank you, Paulina. The feeling is mutual. Thanks so much, uh, Paulina. And I think, uh, uh, Paulina, you and Karen have been an absolute machine in the best possible way, intellectual machine in, in uh, driving driving the, the, the agenda that you have forward and also showing the importance of, of the household um, in uh, obesity production or its intervention especially you know this became especially important during the COVID years so don't forget that we were very quick off the mark in doing our Now, are they talking about strength of obesity? Uh, and uh, healthcare setting. So, so the origin of obesity stigma is the next travel that we are going to take. And Karin Ellie will be a co-supervisor of uh, the PhD student together with me as well.
Thanks Thanks so much, Paulina. Fantastic work. Thank you for your involvement with UBBO. Um, You are always welcome. And uh, next uh, next speaker is Kaushik Bose, who's uh, somebody who has been involved in uh, uh, UBBO uh, from the the earliest days. And uh, um, Kaushik, the floor is yours. Uh, Thank you very much, Tan. I I, I hope you can hear me. Am I audible? Uh, Check, please. Uh, first of all, let me thank the, uh, all the organizers, uh, Apo, especially for inviting me uh, for this talk. It's really a great achievement that we have uh, now celebrating 15 years of uh, Apo. Uh, and so let me uh, start by sharing the screen. And I hope uh, uh, it, 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 is it visible? I'm sharing it. Okay, is it visible? Yes, it is now. Okay, great. Cheers. Now, I'll be talking about central obesity and hypertension among rural adults of uh, a district in West Bengal, that's the eastern state of India. Uh, it's a rural area, and this work is actually done by my doctoral student, Momo Chanak. Uh, so, this is the title of the talk, and uh, let me. Now, uh, we have uh, the problem of central obesity, uh, so it causes, if you look at the diagram on the left, it's association with some uh, diseases with hypertension, cancers, Alzheimer's disease, and diabetes. And on the other side, uh, on the right-hand side, we have got the high blood pressure hypertension, which affects heart attack, loss of vision, stroke, kidney disease of failure, and many other uh, disorders. Now, we have uh, two sets of contributing factors which are related. Now, like uh, for central obesity, we have high energy food consumption, performing less physical activity, greater meat consumption, which was reminds me of the lovely talk given by Nastage, alcohol consumption, genetics, and not enough sleep. Whereas for hypertension, the major risk factors being age, salt, electric cholesterol, obesity, stress, cigarette, alcohol, and lack of exercise. Now, the objective of this, our study was uh, to study the, the prevalence and the relationship of central obesity and hypertension uh, in a, of a rural population uh, in West Bengal. Uh, next slide. Uh, well, this, uh, you see the map of India here. And from India, we have the eastern state of West Bengal. And from the western state of West Bengal, we have the district where I work, this, uh, West Midnapur. And from the district, we have the block where the work uh, was carried out, undertaken. Like the study it was cross-sectional in nature, it was carried out in uh, 2017. All data were collected by my colleague, uh, Moa. And uh, we have with the sample size of 303 adults, 154 males and 156 females. And all were of Bengali ethnicity, that means uh, it was a homogeneous population uh, from that point of view. And aged between 18 and 86 years, all adults. Now, the uh, furthermore, we divided the uh, the uh, the participants in the three age groups as the less than 25 years, 25 years to 26 years to 37 years, and 38 years to 49 years, and 50 years and above. And then we measured height, weight, uh, waist circumference, hip circumference, uh, SBP, DBP, and then we classified individuals into uh, central police status based on interaction accepted cutoff points. And for waist circumference, you know, we followed WH 2000. Waste of ratio, we follow the WH rate 1989, waste height uh, ratio and density index, 
these were the cut-off points used. Uh, in, in many cases, these are sex-specific, except for West High Patient, where there is no sexual dimorphism. And similarly, we, uh, we used the JNC uh, seven cut-off points, the US cut-off points, for we divided individuals into three categories, three hypertension, hypertension stage one, hypertension stage two, and these are the cut-off points we used. Uh, we used the SPSS package version, as usual, we used uh, 0 0.5 uh, as a significance level, and 0 0.1 further, and 0 0.01, much more stronger. Then uh, let's get straight to the uh, results. Now, you'll, from table one, we'll see that in except for waist circumference, uh, all the other central adiposity measures they showed a significant age trend. We did ANOVA by using an ANOVA analysis. There was an increasing age trend in waist hip ratio, waist height ratio, cohesity index, as well as SBP and DBP. Except for waist circumference, all the other measures of central obesity uh, showed a significant uh, age trend. And as expected, uh, in table two, they were all uh, significantly interrelated. Uh, the uh, correlation uh, varied, the strength of correlation varied, but the, all of them were significant. Now, coming to the important finding is that table three, uh, based on the different uh, obesity, central obesity measures like uh, waist circumference based, waist trip ratio based, waist height ratio based, punishment index based. We had we said the sexual uh, dimorphism uh, was there was a significant sexual uh, dimorphism existed. Uh, in all cases, uh, we will notice that the females had a higher prevalence of significantly higher prevalence of central obesity as well as hypertension. Now, then uh, the distribution of uh, central obesity and hypertension among the study samples using. We are studying the relationship between central obesity and hypertension. And uh, uh, we have, as I mentioned earlier, we had uh, categorized sub uh, participants in the three categories pre hypertension, hypertension stage one, hypertension stage two. And we get a similar strong, very, very significant relationship uh, be, uh, between uh, central obesity and the different hypertension stages. The pre hypertension had the least means, uh, hypertension stage one had a greater means. And hypertension stage two are even much bigger than gradient. So, and these were significant using ANOVA analysis. Now, let's get to the discussion. Now, what we had found here is that even in rural populations in India, now they're experiencing some sort of a dual burden. So, this problem was uh, was confined basically in as if not only India, in in, in most developing countries, in uh, among the upper ACS. Uh, whereas uh, the same phenomenon was found in the Western uh, countries uh, maybe 20, 30 years ago, where now in the Western countries the, the trend is reversed because now obesity is found among the much more among the lower ACS because of lack of uh, you know low low fat uh, food alternative because they are much more expensive. Uh, the trend is now in now seen in countries like India. This the, the uh, what we are finding that uh, so you will see the. The prevalence of obesity and uh, based on WHO, we have done some comparison with India. With, uh, basically, we have compared with other developing countries, you know, the Iran, Bangladesh, Egypt, and, and where our population stands and uh, for both uh, central obesity uh, and among uh, males and females, uh, you will notice that uh, uh, quite a, quite a high, high prevalence is there. 
similarly, we have uh, we compared uh, the prevalence hypertension with other developing countries, uh, Nepal, Bangladesh, China, Ethiopia, and Zambia. And then we find that the trend is uh, this trend is uh, being noticed in other developing countries also. Uh, and, and I think we need to do further research on this. And uh, let's uh, get back to the conclusions. Uh, as I already mentioned, that. Uh, there existed a very strong relationship uh, between central obesity and hypertension. Secondly, the, there was a, the prevalence of central obesity is pretty high, or at least moderate, and similarly the prevalence of hypertension. There may be very many factors. We have uh, studied uh, the impact of socioeconomic factors. Unfortunately, because of time constraints, I am not being able to present the, the results here. We studied the socioeconomic factors, uh, income, uh, parity, and other factors, but we are not being able to present it here because of time constraint. But the take-home message is the take-home message is uh, that because uh, there's a lot of ethnic variability in a country like India or in many other countries, uh, such studies should be done on a much larger scale, considering other ethnic groups and to see whether this phenomenon exists in other ethnic groups or how much ethnic variability exists, because that is the uh, of paramount importance to us uh, anthropologists uh, who are studying human values. Thank you very much. Thanks, Stan. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Kaushik. Um, it shows the importance of this work in India, where actually reporting and data collection is still very scanty, but hugely important given how rapidly. Um, uh, uh, obesity and type 2 diabetes is increasing in India. So thank you so much, Kaushik. We've got thank time for a couple much. of questions. Kaushik, if you could take your slides off, we can see everybody on the screen, please. Thank you so much. Thank you. Caroline. Thank you, Kaushik. Um, you, uh, you anticipated my actual question with uh, one yeah. of your last slides, so it's probably going to turn more into a comment. Um, but just to say, I, I think something that in the early days of EBO really struck me was that you know very often we were talking about obesity in, in the plural. So I remember you know some of that was around some of the emerging evidence around visceral fat, central obesity versus you know what we might call the more sort of you know pear shaped what I would associate as female obesity, you know at the hips and, and more of the subcutaneous fat. Um, so I thought the your findings by gender were really interesting because they were counterintuitive to what I'd expect from a Euro-American context, where I think there's that kind of narrative of, you know, women carry their fat, you know, on the outside or on their hips, and it's the men with the kind of, you know, central obesity that are more at risk for, for heart attacks and things. So I think um, I think it's a really important story, and my, my question that you started to address was, um, you know, would you expect uh, to see, you know, differences in the gender patterns elsewhere, um, you know, we might have very different expectations in terms of, you know, Activity consumption uh, patterns, different roles of men and women, and so the, the slides where you started to do that comparative analysis elsewhere suggested yes, you'd see that variation um, cross culturally. Um, but so I, I don't know if you want to add anything further to that. But certainly I was, uh, you know, very on board with your call that we need to do this at a larger scale to be able to pick up all of those variations and really understand what is more sort of ecological, economic, and cultural. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Colonel. Thank you. Thanks. Any other questions? Uh, Mache, last question, yeah, please. Thank you, Karchi. Thank you. It is very important to know what is happening in India, as this will obviously show in other developing countries. But uh, my question is about age. If I remember correctly, 
You said that uh, sector obesity was increasing with age. Yes. Uh, but it is also known that uh, that blood pressure in individuals who are not obese, blood pressure increases with age yes. as well. Yes. Have you noticed the relationship? Yes, actually, uh, I didn't present all the results here, but we have done some uh, regression analysis where we have controlled for age. And even then, we found that you know it's, it's actually independent. Unfortunately, I couldn't present here because of time constraints, but uh, we have found that irrespective of age, even after, after we control for age, in uh, regression, it clearly shows that uh, central obesity has an independent uh, effect on uh, a, a hypertension or blood pressure. Thank Unfortunately, I couldn't, I Okay, just have to unmute myself there. Thank you, Stanley, for the introduction. It has been a pleasure uh, working with you over the years at uh, UBVO and with Caroline. And um, this is very much a retrospective, uh, which aims to celebrate something that I think is really unique about UBVO, which is how it has brought together eating disorders and obesity over the years. Um, so really taking a very broad approach to you know understanding obesity i think but by bringing in um anorexia bulimia and other eating disorders that weren't traditionally um thought to to belong under that category or to you know live alongside that category and i think we've very much challenged that so um yeah let's begin so um I'm just going to go over um, five um, key findings that I think are, um, you know, really, really useful to, to keep in mind. Um, some of these may be um, really obvious to this audience, but nonetheless, um, I think they're important. Um, so let's begin with eating disorders are biocultural. Um, um, in the clinical and scholarly world, um, this kind of statement um, is quite transformational. I think, sorry, I'm like having some technical issues here, unfortunately. Yes, okay, um, so, um, you know, because psychiatry constructs eating disorders as biologically based, and um, condition, food and self-regulation, um, you know, the psychology focuses on the individual, their personality, processing, and past experiences, whereas um, as socially constructed or even invented disorders. Um, but in the last 15 years, anthropologists have been challenging these approaches. Um, we see eating disorders as biological, but don't reduce them to their biology. We also see them as deeply cultural, but we don't reduce them to cultural construction. And we acknowledge that the cultural is multifaceted. It goes beyond images and body ideals to encompass political economies, um, medical systems, and the materialities of everyday objects as we see on this slide. So in the next few minutes, I'll discuss other key psychological findings whose um, uniting feature is that they offer new and perhaps surprising 
um, and participants with eating disorders and recovery from eating disorders as well. So and just to let you know, there's a lot of text on these slides. I don't mean, mean for you to, to read all of it, but as I was putting this together, I thought this could be a good summary resource for anyone who's interested um, in a retrospective of um, key findings um, in the anthropology of eating disorders. So if any of you is interested, just get in touch with me and I'll send you a PDF of this. Okay, so um, a really key finding um, is that anorexia is a process and not a state. Um, and um, here we see, you know, Megan landmark um, work um, on anorexia in which she argued that emaciation is not the endpoint of anorexia. So even though, you know, we're used to images of um, emaciated bodies and uh, presumably capturing what anorexia is, um, actually Megan has pointed out that anorexia is filled with ebbs and flows of weight and that it's created through everyday processes of living. And um, Anna Levis's work has expanded on that and um, you know, Anna has very much um, talked about how anorexia is lived dynamically day to day, um, you know, clearly showing how people with anorexia constantly interact with their condition and how they adjust their practice to maintain both anorexia and their own agency and this sort of constant balancing act. Um, and here is another um, important finding, um, eating disorders are modes of survival. So. Um, eating disorders is not really just about losing weight or, um, you know, sorry about that, um, or about, you know, achieving a certain body ideal, but it's really a mode of being in the world, of living in the world and surviving in the world. And here both Anna and I kind of separately uh, working with very, very like different data um, on an individual basis um, reached quite similar conclusions. Um, Anna's written about how anorexia is a safe bubble, which allows participants to continue living in an overwhelming world, whereas I wrote about how disordered eating, which includes restriction, binge eating, and purging, is a survival response to social suffering, kind of broadly understood. So that encompasses um, different levels of the social, from you know the intimacy of the familial environment to um, structural violence. Something else that anthropologists have done is to call attention to binge eating as a meaningful practice. So, um, you know, feminist scholarship and social theory have very much focused on anorexia, um, you know, because it lends itself better to um, theorizing. Um, but um, we've really honed the focus on binge eating as a practice, you know, thinking about the culture of emotive metaphors that it carries, um, thinking about binge eating as um, a form of um, creating a distinct identity, so not, you know, not positioning bulimia as secondary to anorexia or as being about failing, quote-unquote, at anorexia, but really being distinct and standing on its own. And um, also, um, more recently, recognizing that bulimia is not monolithic and that it has um, its own cultural specificities that we need to attend to. Another point is that treatment regimes define and also constrain possibilities for recovery. And here, um, a leader has been Rebecca Lester, um, who works in the US. And um, she is very much, um, through her ethnographic work, um, pointed out how the clinical treatment of eating disorders is culturally specific. Um, so, you know, even though different clinics may be 
does to treat a similarly diagnosed disorder, actually they're treating um, very much localized, culturally nuanced um, versions of eating disorders in their own particular ways. Um, and more recently, she has um, critically analyzed how the managed care system in the U.S. Um, intervenes with um, recovery from eating disorders, arguing that treatment failure is an artifact of the political economy of healthcare. And in my own work, I've looked at how um, treat treatment ambivalence, or um, you know, the high dropout rate from eating disorder treatment, is actually a protective response that's constructed within treatment regimes that threaten to conflate the person and their disorder. And these are just some references. As I said, this could be a summary document for all of you who are interested in um, eating disorders um, in anthropology. And I will take questions now if you have them. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Karine. Um, open for questions. Sorry about this. I have no idea why I'm still sharing the screen. <laughs> It's quite challenging. Okay. Tao, Tao has a question. Tao. Oh, sorry. I was just uh, applauding, but <laughs> okay, <laughs> I just be like, nice, Karine. Nice. So wonderful to see and hear from you again. Yeah, I think it's another another form of complexity. And uh, I think uh, showing how this brings characteristics of uh, obesity and uh, weight gain in relation to in, uh, in relation to eating and weight fluctuation and so on. So really, um, you know, really fantastic work. We'll now move to thank you so much, Karine. Thank you. Okay, final presentation um, is going to be from Tao Dam, and she said, "I might not even manage five minutes, and that's absolutely fine." After this presentation, we're going to have a brief social. So anybody wanting to hang around and um, share a cup of tea and uh, share some chat, we know how important chat is to UBVO in terms of uh, in terms of uh, informal conversations. So you're very welcome to stay, sharing the conversation and so on. So Tao, the floor is yours. All right. Let me uh, start sharing. See if it's. All right. I'm always worried about this platform, despite all the time. All right. Let's see. View. Presentation. Where is it? Slideshow. Can everyone see my screen? Yes. Um, okay. I'll start uh, my timer. Everyone, I'm Tao. I'm very happy to be here. I'll be last second. Uh, UPVO, I wouldn't say that I came to it. It sort of came to me during the matriculation ceremony at my MSc in Met Anthropology, where Stanley walked up to me and said, oh, you like food, we should talk. And then that launched a you know great series of fun collaborations, working on the podcast and also speaking in seminars. So it's really nice for, to meet you all virtually. So today I'll be talking about the wonderful world of mukbang. Mukbang, mukbang. There are many ways to say it, no matter how you type it onto the internet out of various uh, user-generated content platforms, such as YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, you will find a series of exceptionally visually, you know, multi-sensory stimulating videos of people eating food in the presence, digital presence of others. And, you know, this comes as a 
I would argue as an inevitability with what Andrew Feenberg calls, you know, the, the digital turn, the technological turn, as well as Dr. Tanya Lewis's interpretation of the digital turn of food. So how has, you know, technological advancements, digitalization of life, how does that interact with food and how we understand, perform, and handle it? So what is mukbang? Well, mukbang is short for mukbang song, which is the Korean word uh, combination, a complex word, which combines the verb mukda with nun and bang song. So broadcast eating, to be fair and be short. The mukbang content is created by a bunch of different people, often called broadcast jockeys or BJs. And one of the defining characteristics is that they sort of emphasize these multi-sensorial presentation, as well as social interactivity with an online group or audience, so chat rooms, commentary, what have you. And this very much has to do in terms with uh, having a wonderful spread of food, often in excess amount, with a focus on different colors and textures and sound. So people will eat their food and lean into a microphone, basically. And there are many different typologies, you know, different categories where people classify as mukbang, which kind of get blurred into different food media concepts. So that food selfies, food porn, ASMR, food shows, as well as cookbang, which is where they will cook a giant meal and then they will eat it. And these have different sort of themes and thematic insights. For example, people focus on the colors of the food. They promote very different dietary movements, such as veganism showing how veganism can be fun and exciting and also can have binge eating situations. We can see people assessing different food products and brands. We can see them being organized by different food types, for example, many pasta dishes, or as well as like suits, as well as kind of people, different eaters exploring and sharing their local cuisines and trying other different types. Here's an example of one of the most popular mukbang BJs as well as her kind of aesthetics of it all. There's a group, there might be an individual, and there's a lot of food and people eat and converse with an online audience. So why is mukbang so popular? There's been a lot of different insights from different interdisciplinary researchers. One reason is being it's an appeasement for loneliness caused by the capitalistic cycle that we are all trapped in. <laughs> there's a desire to participate in a group meal commensality within this loneliness. There is a like a desire for vicarious satiation. So if you're allergic to something or you can't access a certain type of food, you can watch someone eat it. And it'll give you that kind of joy. There's also the idea of just, you know, getting to participate in an online situation. So what are the applications and implications of this on a baseline, broad stroke level? Well, we have a lot of insights on the ongoing digital turn of food and on life consumption practices. How can you consume in your daily life virtually? Uh, and how does that connect with kind of this bodily tangible space as well as your digital life? Uh, I forgot to write the end of the sentence, but yeah, enacting the digital onto your physical body. You can look at it as a space for data mining for food products, services, and brands. So a lot of potential for user experience research. We also have the issue of regulatory gray areas on the impacts of digital activities of like behavior, health, and food systems. In my previous talk, I talked about uh, you know, bodily autonomy, navigating social behavior through digital spaces, and where does the line stop in regulation? And it also kind of signals 
or basically the more translation of food and eating processes and rituals into the digital realm to come. So this is just kind of the tip of the iceberg. Thank you so much for listening. Very short and sweet. Hope to speak about it more in the future. Thanks. Thanks so much, Tao. Um, great presentation. Love the work. Um, are there any questions?